Take your Bible and open to Ezekiel chapter 35. I'm sure this is the chapter everyone's been waiting for in Ezekiel. Not really. Not really. If you took a deep breath when we completed chapter 32 thinking all of the judgment chapters are finally over, well, we've got a little shock for you this evening. One of the judgment chapters devoted to the judgment of the nations is not like the rest in that it's not grouped together with all of the others. Here in Ezekiel chapter 35, we find this prophecy against Mount Seir, against Edom, really. And you recall back in chapter 25, there were three verses, verses 12 through 14, there was this little short judgment section on Edom. In fact, just turn back over there. We can reread it. It's not very long at all. Chapter 25, verses 12 through 14. Thus says the Lord God. Thus says Lord Yahweh. Because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast. And I will make it desolate from Teman even to Dedan, which most likely just meant from the northernmost point to the southernmost point. From Teman even to Dedan, they shall fall by the sword, and I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. So Israel was going to destroy them. And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. And they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Three little short verses. I guess we should have seen something else coming. I actually preached that chapter when we went through that section, I reminded you that the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, from whom the twelve tribes of Israel are descended. That is, Jacob uh, gave birth to twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel, and Esau was his brother. Ralph Alexander writes of the Edomites, quote, Edom, perhaps more than any other nation had continually detested and resented Israel, end quote. Charles Feinberg writes, quote, Edom was indeed exemplary among the nations for her hatred and animosity toward Israel, end quote. I mean, to be exemplary among the nations is great except for what it describes here. In other words, despite their being closely related, in Alabama we might say they're near kin, Despite that, there was perhaps no nation so set against Israel in the entire Old Testament as the nation of Edom. They were not strong. They were not powerful like Egypt or Assyria or Babylon, but they were continually opposed to Israel almost at every turn, often taking sides with Israel's more powerful enemies when they would attack the land. Quite a number of prophet, prophets, prophets uh, address Edom specifically, condemning her for her crimes not only against God's people Israel, but for her crimes against God Himself. 
including the little prophet Obadiah, who took aim directly at Edom. In fact, that is his only target. Brian and I preached through Obadiah back in 2020. If you're interested, those sermons are online. They're available on our app, Sermon Audio, whatever. It's just two sermons. You can breeze through there in a couple of hours. Anyway, why is this prophecy here? What, what I mean to ask is why isn't this chapter located back in the section with all of the other judgments? You know, the temptation of the preacher is to lift this passage out of its context and just drop it back over there and deal with it as we did those, chapter, those chapters. But I think that would be to miss the point. That would miss God's sovereign hand in placing this text here where we find it this evening. We certainly believe this chapter's here because God put it here. He could have put it back there, but He chose not to. We'll talk about it a little bit more at the end of the sermon, but let me say up front that chapter 35 is part of a bigger section. In fact, it runs all the way through chapter 36, verse 15. Notice chapter 35, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. In other words, set your face against the mountains of Edom. Notice verse 1 in chapter 36. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. You probably can see it. Chapters 35 and 36 contain this, this contrast. One message that is against and another message that is to. The first message to Edom is a message of condemnation, while the next message to Israel is a message of promised blessing. Chapter 35 is written to the persistent enemy of God's people. Chapter 36 is written to God's chosen people. So you might expect there to be a completely different intent, and that is exactly what we will find as we work through these texts. I think that's enough to get us started. Let's just work through the text, and we'll circle back to some of that later. The title this evening in chapter 35 is, Edom Shall Know. Edom Shall Know. In this text, Edom is convicted as guilty for her treatment of Israel and sentenced to destruction by Yahweh Himself. All right, let's look at the first four verses. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord, or you shall know that I am Yahweh. That's what the Hebrew says there. Apparently, Edom's opposition of Israel increased significantly after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, after they demolished the city wall and leveled the temple. That's probably why the chronology of the book places this here, but there's certainly more to it than that. Ezekiel is told to prophesy against Mount Seir, probably referring to Edom as a whole, just like what we read a second ago in chapter 36 
prophesies to the mountains of Israel, and it certainly means Israel as a whole, the entire nation. God says here that He is against Edom. In fact, that's precisely what Ezekiel was to tell them. And here's God's message to them. I will stretch out my hand against you. I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste. You shall become a desolation. No parole. That's the sentence. This sentence is actually passed in this chapter before the evidence is ever offered. The why will come here in a minute, but we don't have to worry about God. He's the most righteous judge that has ever been. Whatever He says is certainly right. Nevertheless, God promised to lay waste the land of Edom, assuring them that they will be wiped out. What purpose is this going to serve? Same thing we've seen throughout this book. You shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am Yahweh. Thus my title this evening, Edom shall know. We'll see that repeated several times as we work through this text. Listen, all of God's actions, whether mercy and grace or judgment and condemnation, All of God's actions redound to His glory. We might say, rather than the word redound, we might say all of His actions contribute to His glory. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Now that may make us uncomfortable when we read that, but the text is true Nevertheless, our comfort notwithstanding. The wicked will ultimately glorify God and His justice throughout eternity. Here, in this text, Edom is that object of God's wrath, and He will show His consistent righteousness with His dealings uh, with them, the persistent enemy of God's chosen earthly people. He will show His righteousness in His condemnation and judgment of this wicked nation. Verse 5, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment, therefore as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. This sounds a lot like the law of retribution spoken of in the Old Testament. What they wished on Israel, they're going to actually receive. These two verses and several more contain the charges against Edom. We've already heard the sentence passed, but here are the charges. They cherished perpetual enmity against the people of God, against the people of Israel. Brian Standard says, because you harbored an ancient hatred. The net says, you've shown unrelenting hostility. You get the point here. Their hatred against Israel, their mistreatment of them goes all the way back to ancient times. Why? Why is that? Well, you may well remember Jacob, who became Israel, and Esau, who became Edom, were brothers, twin brothers actually, born to Isaac and Rebekah. 
And though the birthright was normally granted to the firstborn, God sovereignly chose the younger brother, Jacob, over the older brother, Esau. In fact, before the children were even born, God told their mother, Rebekah, this, Genesis 25-23, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. That was contrary to their culture and contrary to most cultures. Despite that, though, despite that extremely clear declaration of God's will... Isaac, the father of those two boys, preferred Esau, the older. And it looked like God's purpose might be thwarted because of Isaac with both the birthright and the blessing going to the older son, Esau. However, God's purpose was absolutely not going to be thwarted. It never is. God's purposes always come out exactly how He would have them to come out. Well, if you follow the story... Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for some bread and lentil stew. That might be today where someone sold their birthright for a peanut butter sandwich and a bag of chips. You know, seems rather insignificant. And then later, Rebecca, mom, and Jacob tricked father Isaac into blessing Jacob rather than Esau. They dressed Jacob up as Esau in Esau's clothes so that the boy's father, whose eyesight had failed him due to the fact that he was was old in age, he wouldn't know who he was actually blessing, and so he blessed Jacob. You can find all of that in Genesis 25 through 27 if you want to read about that. And look, while I do not approve of the trickery of Rebekah and Jacob, That was God's purpose all along, that the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled not through Esau, but through Jacob. Well, how do you think Esau's descendants reacted to all that trickery? We don't have to guess. They're still reacting to it. They have continued to claim throughout the centuries that the land is actually theirs. They did not want God's will, they wanted their own will. And listen, though God blessed Esau, he was very good to him. He blessed him with many blessings, multitudes of descendants, a land of his own. The descendants of Esau continued to covet Jacob's land and have often sought to take control of it. Look, we can still see that attitude in the Middle East today. It's just this little bitty sliver of land. Nothing really in comparison to the rest of the Middle East. Just a little sliver of land has been the focus of all those people groups for centuries. Not only the Jews, not only the descendants of Esau, but the descendants of Ishmael, the descendants of Lot, the Ammonites, the Moabites, all of the Middle Easterners want Israel. They want that land. Well, anyway, during the Babylonian attack on Judah that we've studied about here in Ezekiel, Edom stood by and took advantage of the Jews herself. Now, we don't know exactly the date of the book Obadiah. But here's what Obadiah says. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, 
Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Listen to this. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Now it's possible Obadiah was not writing about the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. We don't know for certain. But you can at least see the character of the Edomites. When someone attacked, they took advantage. Edom did not have the power of Babylon. If they'd have had that power, they would have sought to destroy Israel on their own. But what they did was they waited until a larger country attacked, and then they took what they could for themselves. They were sitting there ready to pounce the moment that they had the opportunity. This is who they were. And now they're going to have to pay for it. God knew. Notice verse 7. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go. You see the similarities with the prophet Obadiah. And I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your cities shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Repeated phrase that we've seen throughout this book. Edom is going to be laid waste. Edom is going to be a desert land. They would be attacked, and the mountains would be filled with the slain. Notice it says, all throughout the hills and the valleys and the ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall. This is not a pretty sight. These are dead bodies scattered everywhere. You may be aware how important burial was to Middle Easterners back in this day. It was a very, very important thing. Really far more than we make of it now. Even though it's important to us, it was even more important To them, Charles Feinberg again writes, quote, The height of indignity in the Orient was to not be properly buried, end quote. The height of indignity was to not be properly buried. And yet that's precisely what God is prophesying against them. Dead bodies strewn everywhere. This sounds to me like just total destruction, like Hiroshima or... Nagasaki, when atomic bombs were dropped on them during World War II. You know, almost a quarter million people were killed. The cities were quite literally leveled. But Hiroshima and Nagasaki today have been rebuilt. They are actually functioning cities. However, notice what it says about Edom. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your cities shall not be inhabited. So... We're not going to have a Hiroshima-Nagasaki type thing because they're they're going to continue to be laid waste. And what's the purpose? You will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am Yahweh. Edom may deny God. They may deny His will. They may deny His power. But their denial, their unbelief did not change the fact that God is God. And he can do whatever he desires. Listen, man's unbelief, man's rejection of his word is powerless against the sovereign of the universe. 
How many times have you had a conversation with someone about Scripture, about Jesus, about the Gospel, and they say, I just don't believe that? That's irrelevant. It's true whether we believe it or not, and that's the case here with Edom. Verse 10, because you said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we shall take possession of them. Although the Lord was there, therefore as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I judge you. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Continued statement. You shall know that I am the Lord. More evidence to support the sentence that we read about early on in the first few verses. Notice it says here that Edom sought to take possession of these two nations. What two nations? I thought Israel was just one nation. Well, if you'll recall, after Solomon, the kingdom actually split into two two different nations, northern and southern, because of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So that's what it's talking about here, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. The Edomites believe this is their birthright. That's why they sought to take possession of the land. They believed it's their birthright despite the fact that the Lord was there. In other words... They ignored God's clearly revealed will for this land. Jacob's descendants are to possess it forever. They sought to take it for themselves. They sought to conquer it. And here's their condemnation. God said, I will deal with you according to the anger anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred of them. Again, that law of retribution. You you wished this on them, well, I'm going to give it to you. That's not really surprising since in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now that promise is likely just to Abraham, but there's little doubt that it extended to his offspring. We can see that through the Old Testament. God continually punished Israel's enemies. So it's not a surprise really that Edom is going to be punished What is surprising is that this came from such a close relative, Jacob's brother, Abraham's grandson. And notice, God has a purpose for Israel in this judgment against Edom. Look at the end of verse 11. And I will make myself known among them, Israel, when I judge you, Edom. Now up to this point, we, we studied this for months in the book of Ezekiel. Israel has been the unfaithful wife. Again, chapter after chapter after chapter. However, God is going to use the punishment of Edom to make Himself known among the Jews. That's clear. And then once again, God says to Edom, And you shall know that I am Yahweh. This is God's goal. All right, let's move on. I've heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying they are laid desolate, they are given us to devour. 
And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. More of the same. The descendant of Esau, the descendants, plural, of Esau uttered revilings against the mountains of Israel. Like a, like a hawk, they just circled their prey when they saw that she had been attacked. You know, through Amos, God actually said in, in Amos chapter 1, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the judgment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. In other words, the Edomites did not pity the Israelites when they were attacked. No, they jumped on them and tried to take more from them. They tried to destroy the cities and take the land for themselves. In fact, the Lord says here, they saw it as an opportunity to devour Israel. And they did this full well knowing that they opposed Yahweh. Notice, and you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth, and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. You ever been talking about somebody? Mom, dad, your boss, somebody. You turn around and they're standing there. That ever happened to you? It's happened. If you've lived long enough, it's probably happened to you. Your heart never sinks so quickly. Listen, when God says here, I heard it, that's how they should have felt. It should have rocked them to their core, but apparently it didn't. I heard it, God said, and I will punish you for what you've said and done. We'll circle back to that here in a minute. Now look at verse 14. Here's sort of what we've been working towards. Thus says the Lord God, While the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all of Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. So if, after the Jews were taken captive to Babylon, if at that time the Edomites seized control of the land, what was going to be done to the Edomites when the Israel was carried back into their land. These, these final two verses actually answer that question. While the earth rejoices, God says, note that. That's important. That's significant. While the earth rejoices. Let, just think of the context of where we are right here. We are in the middle of a very significant section in the book of Ezekiel, a, a, a greatly important section, not merely for the past, but for the future, for eschatological reasons. Chapter 34 spoke of a time when Messiah will reign over Israel, when he will be both king and priest, the great shepherd of his people. 
During that time, God promises a covenant of peace with them. Brian spoke on that last week. A time when they shall dwell securely and none shall make them afraid. Chapter 36, the next chapter after the one we're studying this evening, will continue with more of that. Promising Israel blessings in their land and blessings on their land. A time when the new covenant will be fully realized by the descendants of Jacob. Look at, look at chapter 36. Just look down to verse 24. Listen to what God says to Israel here. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. By the way, you notice they aren't going to bring this about. God says, I will do all of this. You, can't, you cannot get away from all of the I wills in that section. That time when Israel is converted will be that time that the world, the earth rejoices that it speaks about here. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 11 explaining the current state of Israel now. Here's what Paul writes. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, did they stumble forever? Have they been set aside forever? By no means. That's that meganoita in, in Greek. It means no, 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 no. Don't ever think that. So did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, but not without a purpose for Israel. Notice God says, so as to make Israel jealous. You see, God is still working now on them. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Listen, that time in which the whole earth rejoices... Paul refers to in Romans 11 saying that it is much more than the current riches of the Gentiles while Israel is temporarily set aside and the gospel has gone to every corner of the globe. When Jesus returns, when He sits on David's throne as king of all the earth, all wrongs are going to be righted. The world will enjoy a time of peace and prosperity that it has never seen. It is a time that the whole earth rejoices. Zechariah 8 speaks of that same time of peace, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue will take hold the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Nothing like that has ever happened. Nothing like that has ever 
occurred. But it's coming when Jesus reigns in righteousness, very much unlike all the world leaders we have today. Both sides. Every form of government. Our hope is not republicanism. Our hope is not lower taxes. Our hope is Jesus. That's a time when the whole earth rejoices. I say all that to say this. There is an exception to that time. The whole earth rejoices except for one nation. It's right here in our text. Look again at verse 14. God says, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. You hear how God repeats Himself there. Well, the descendants of Esau will have no part in the earthly kingdom of Messiah. God has spoken. Now that may not have looked right in their eyes. They may have said, man, we've got the cat by the tail. We're in the land. They're in captivity. But look, how things looked in their eyes are not reality. That's not the end. The fortunes are going to be reversed and they are going to be judged. And not only would Edom know that Yahweh is God because of this judgment, but Israel will know that God is God. All right, let's see what we can sort of round up here. A lot of commentators believe that God uses Mount Seir and Edom merely to represent all of Israel's enemies, specifically their enemies in the Middle East. And it's rooted in chapter 36. Look at verse 5. Surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make its pasture lands a prey. So Edom is singled out, but the rest of the nations who took the land as a possession are included here as part of this. So a lot of commentators again think that Edom is just sort of a figurehead of all of those groups over there. For what it's worth, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and the Ishmaelites have all sort of been absorbed into the group we refer to today as Arabs. And they are all indignant enemies of God and the nation of Israel. Today, just look at the war that's going on now between Israel and Hamas. I'm not in any way suggesting that is some kind of biblical prophecy being fulfilled or nothing. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying they hate each other. That seems clear enough. Those people detest Israel, and they do so for two reasons. First... They have always believed that that land was really theirs. That Jacob was a schemer who tricked Isaac into giving him Esau's rightful blessing. And while that is technically true, it was still God's purpose all along to give it to Jacob, not Esau. Even before the boys were ever born, 
So that's the first reason that they hate them so badly. But the second reason is a religious reason. They hate God. They hate Yahweh. They hate the Word of God, the Bible. In fact, throughout history, they've followed all kinds of various pagan religions. And today, most of those groups over there are dogmatically Muslim. And they surely detest the God of Scripture. It appears really that they haven't learned anything yet. But they will. They will. That land matters. It is such a focal point of prophecy. 8,500 square miles. Smaller than Massachusetts. And yet that land matters. It obviously matters to the people of Israel and it matters to the surrounding nations. But it matters to God because He gave it to someone who is not yet possessing it. But why aren't they possessing it? That, that's, a, that's a good question. I think it needs to be answered. Why are the Jews not today living in peace and prosperity that has been promised to them? Well, look, if you know the Bible, you know precisely why. They rejected their Messianic King. They rejected Jesus. Now look, God had a plan. He had a plan in which He was going to redeem His people through the death of Christ on the cross. That is certainly true, but that does not dissolve them of the guilt of murdering Jesus. In fact, Peter's very clear on the day of Pentecost. He said, you have crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men the very Messiah that God sent to you. They were guilty, and today they remain guilty. In fact, today there remains a famine in the land. That's not about the United States, by the way. That's about, that's about Israel. However, Zechariah speaks of a future day of national repentance for Israel. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, And I, God says this, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced... How did Zechariah know Jesus was going to be crucified? Oh, God gave him this. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. I mean, it's very similar to what's said there in Ezekiel 36 about God working on them. Isaiah 53 actually describes just such a repentant attitude. I certainly don't have time to go to Isaiah 53 this evening, but Jacob preached a sermon on Isaiah 53 in our 2020 conference. It's worth your time. Go listen to it. Anyway, Israel will repent of their sin and through the new covenant, the same way God is saving people today, through the new covenant, we might say by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Israel will be converted and restored to their land. Nobody's being saved by keeping the law. Never have they been, never will they be. Well, that actually takes us right into chapter 36. You'll just have to remember that next week. I'm not going into chapter 36 this evening. Now let's see if we can glean some really, really quick truths that are applicable for us then today. Real quick. Just like God knew everything about Edom, He knows absolutely everything about 
every one of us to the number of hairs you have on your head. He knows it all. He knows every act we have ever done. He knows every thought we've ever had. He knows every motive for every action. Even if we did the right thing for the wrong reason, God knows. God is righteous, and so God certainly is a God of love. We rejoice in that, but He is also a God of wrath. And He's not going to just let sin slide. He would cease to be righteous if He did that. All sin is going to be judged. All sin will be paid for, just like we see here with Edom. Their sin, even though it had been delayed, the judgment of their sin, God had not forgotten it. It's not going to just slide away. Folks, listen, there is no worse place you can possibly be than the receiving end of God's wrath. For God to be against you like He is against the descendants of Esau here in our text this evening is the worst possible place to be. That seems abundantly clear from everything we've read about them here. Edom believed they were okay. They rejected God's clearly revealed word, but that made no difference. Guys, listen, no matter the attitude of the enemies of God, no matter whether they believe God exists, yet they shake their fist at Him, or they are the staunchest atheist of our day, God is still God, and we are all still accountable to Him. Whether we believe His word is irrelevant in the big scheme of things, it's certainly relevant for us. But it doesn't make God's Word more true that we acknowledge the truth of it. It's true whether we believe it or not. Isaiah prophesied of a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. All children of our God and King will bow. Just like we sang earlier this evening. That is coming. The only hope for you to escape God's wrath on that day is the same hope for Israel back then and now, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. So my prayer this evening as we finish up chapter 35 is that you are trusting with your entire being that Christ alone is your only hope to escape God's wrath against your sin because He truly is your only hope for eternal life. Stand with me if you will. Darren, will you dismiss us please?